Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 13, Acts 13. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 41. I know that that sounds like a lot of verses, but that's only because it's a lot of verses. Acts chapter 13, verses 13 through 41. Uh, It is a lot to cover. We're going to take it in sections. We're going to work our way through it because I, I want us to really hit a particular theme. And it's a theme that, that is easily missed, especially by Baptists. We're Baptists. If you don't know, if you're new here, we're Baptists. And um, Baptists, especially if you go old school, if you've been in Baptist churches uh, when you, throughout your life, then you've heard of the three Bs. Baptists like to talk about the three Bs. They like to talk about bricks or buildings. Somebody just call it bricks. Buildings, right? Baptisms. And anybody else know what the third one is? Budget. Of course it is, Right. Bricks or building, baptisms and budget, three very important things for many modern Baptists. And they almost treat these things, not almost, they oftentimes intentionally do, treat these things as the means to be a healthy church. As long as you've got these things happening, right, these three things, you got a building, you got to have a place, got to be nice. Uh, You want baptisms, you want to be reaching people with the gospel, you want people to trust in Christ, so you're adding to your numbers that way. And you need a budget because you got to get things done. The truth is, though, if you spend any time with churches in other cultures or other parts of the city other than your own, you'll begin to see pretty quickly that you can have, uh, wow, you can have all, the, all three, you can have the three Bs and the church be really unhealthy, or you know what, you might not have a building and you might not have any money, but the church is really healthy. Baptists tend to get a little bit confused historically, right, at least I should say recently in the last couple of hundred years, <laughs> last hundred years in particular, we oftentimes get infatuated with these things that aren't bad. Buildings aren't bad, but they aren't the solution to the problem. They aren't the means by which we actually become healthy churches. So I want us to get back to this principle that you here at Redeemer know well. The principle is this, Jesus builds his church and his followers through the ministry of his word. This is not to suggest that there are that uh, things like baptisms aren't important. Of course they are, because that is a mark that someone has begun to follow Jesus, and therefore it is very important because we want to reach people with the gospel. It's not to suggest that we don't need to worry about things like offerings and budgets. We don't worry about them, but we take them seriously because we want to continue the work of ministry to the best of our abilities. These things are fine, but the thing that will ensure that the church is actually healthy and growing in the right ways is this principle. It's Jesus and his word. Jesus is the one who builds his church and his followers through the ministry of his word. That's what I want us to see. We're going to walk through this in three stages. Number one, we're going to see that the church has a strategy. Number two, we're going to see that the church has a message. And number three, that the church has a book. Okay, so that's how we're going to do this. We'll start with the church has a strategy in verses 13 through 16 of Acts chapter 13. It says, now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, and we'll stop there. The church had a strategy, right? Now, before we get into the strategy that we've already begun to see play itself out in the book of Acts, let's just note that there has been a roster change of sort. Things are different now uh, because you had Barnabas, right? You had Saul and John Mark was there on their first missionary journey and somebody just bailed, right? You see it. 
It says that uh, John left. John Mark left, went back, went back home. Now, it doesn't say why. Luke doesn't say why he decided to leave. And it might not even read like it's that big of a deal. Oh, okay. So John left, and he returned to Jerusalem. Sounds like, you know, something must have come up. Turns out that this is actually a big deal. This creates a problem. This creates stress and tension. It actually fractures some relationships. One of the things that I appreciate about the Bible is that it doesn't paint the saints in glorious light. It shows that the saints of God are oftentimes idiots. We're, they're like us. They're oftentimes wrong. They oftentimes sin drastically. They sometimes are confused. Now, I'm not saying that John Mark is wrong for what he did. I don't know. We don't know all of the reasons why he's go By the way, I, again, lots of commentaries like to speculate, well, he was probably homesick, you know, and, uh, you know, the cultural differences, it is... Okay, look, let's just, let's just say we don't know why he left, but for whatever reason, Paul didn't receive it well. And we know that because we can go to Acts chapter 15. Listen to how this ultimately uh, has an impact on, on the apostles here. So you just go to Acts 15, verses 37 through 39. It says, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. In other words, it says like, yeah, good, good, good idea, uh, Barnabas. I hear what you're saying. Maybe we don't take the guy that bailed on us. That's how this reads. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas and Paul separated over this. So whatever's going on, like this is, this is, this looks to me like a form of satanic attack where God is beginning to do something big, something cool, like uh, God is reaching more people and, and the church is getting organized and, and they're all in unison, right, for the most part, and now something's happening. John Mark leaves. Now, maybe that doesn't have to be such a big deal, but the devil certainly uses it as an opportunity to create problems in the church. So... This is happening in the midst of the unfolding of their strategy. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. Where do they go? On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. This is one of uh, Paul's strategies, right? He, he, he wants to go to the synagogue. Why does he want to go to the synagogue? Because in the synagogue, what do you have? You have the scripture. The scripture is there and it's read and it's discussed, it's taught. So they literally have the word of God there that's going to be read. People show up to hear the word of God and the people that are there, they believe in God. And not just some generic sense of God, they believe in the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They believe in Yahweh. So Paul likes to show up and then, of course, they're going to hear the word. And as a teacher, as one who has studied, they invite him and they often invite him to go ahead and expound and to teach on the law. And so he does. This is a great strategy for him to get in and to preach the word. Now, some people don't like the idea of strategy. Like, why do you need strategy? Why don't you just go do the ministry? Just like preach the gospel. What do you have to have a strategy for? It sounds kind of worldly to have a strategy. Like you're playing a game. Like you're playing the board game Risk. Like I don't, it's not ministry. It should be serious. And the reality is, is you always have a strategy when you're engaging in ministry to someone or to any group of people. There are certain things you have to take into consideration to figure out what is the best way for me to engage, to, to talk, to lead, to serve, to correct, to rebuke. Like there's always going to be some form of strategy. Saul, Saul Paul clearly has one here. And the church always has a strategy. Now, strategies can change, right? They can shift. They can, they can develop. It depends a lot on where you're at and what you're doing. But the strategy is always a means of presenting 
the word of God, of presenting the message that we have been given. That's like the big picture strategy for the church is always just get the word out. Just get the scripture out there because that's the thing that God uses to change people. So that's what I want us to understand, right? That we have a word-driven ministry. Healthy churches have a word-driven ministry. It's not the only thing that they're about. It's not the only thing that they talk about. But the word is central because by the word of God, you see sinners convicted of our sins. You see people converted, right? Changed from spiritual death brought to spiritual life. In in the preaching of the word, we have lives that are actually changed progressively. People are changed. So yes, we have a word-driven, what we say, message, right? We have a word-driven strategy. So that means, though, that if we have a word-driven strategy, that we must have a message. And this is where we get a little bit confused, and I get a little concerned. The church has a message, but there seems to be a temptation for that message to shift or change after a period of time. And every church is going to be known for its message because we're all communicating something, right? And whether it's, if people only were to look at an advertisement that a church puts out, there's something communicated about their message. There's something there. It may not be accurate, but it's reflecting something. You look at the writings, you look at the teaching, you look at the preaching, you look at the confessional standards that a church has. The church has a message, and there's a lot of things that the church has to say. But our message is fundamentally, fundamentally, it is history. It's, it's not ideology. The message of the church is not an ideology. It's not just some philosophy. It is grounded in history. And we see this as Paul begins to preach, right? They read the scripture, and now Paul begins to go. So listen to how Paul begins to talk about what God has done. And how Christ has been brought about. It's all history. It starts in verse 17. He says, men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all of my will." All that to say, Paul goes quick to the historical facts, right? He goes all the way back. He said, listen, God created the nation of Israel. He built us up while we were enslaved in Egypt. And then he delivered us. So there's this history, God creating, God delivering, God instituting a a covenant, God putting up with them uh, in in the wilderness, providing for them, leading them into the promised land, uh, establishing their borders, giving them all of his promises, they wanted leadership, they got judges, they, they got prophets, they got kings, and then finally they get David. And he goes, and David, David was a special king because now this is the one through whom the Messiah is going to come. Because our message is not just history, it is history, but it's also promise, right? It's also promise. And we have this, this promise that comes 
in the form of the, the eager anticipation of the Messiah. Verse 23, it says, of this man, speaking of David, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So, John the Baptist, like, is the last prophet before Christ begins his ministry, and he goes, no, he's coming, and I am unworthy. I'm not the one. The one is on the way. And what does he say when he sees Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The church has a message. It is very much history, and it's promise, and it's seen in the person of Jesus. If ultimately we're going to say, well, what is our message really about? We say our message, the church's message, is not social. It's not political. It is theological. It is fundamentally about Jesus Christ. That's our message in the shortest possible summary. This doesn't mean that we don't have things to say about many issues, but this is the message. In verses 26 through 29, we get to see this emphasis on Jesus and what happened to Jesus historically. It says, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation, right? See, the message of what? Of salvation, not of, not of political change, not of, not of renewal, not of health, not of prosperity, but of salvation, this is the message the apostles have received. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. This is what happened to Christ, the righteous one, the Son of God, who fulfilled all righteousness. He was murdered, but that death was actually a part of the plan to redeem sinners like us. But Jesus didn't just die. He rose. It says in verse 30, but God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now witnesses to the people. We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. And so then he begins to quote the Psalms and explain, like these Psalms are testifying, they are promising and prophesying that God would raise up his son. The message that we share is a message of Christ and his death, of his resurrection, and when you read this, it really does sound like Peter. Remember when Peter was preaching in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4? This sounds a lot like Peter. He go, they go back to history. Our gospel message is about something that happened in space and in time. Because what Jesus did in space and in time 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem had cosmic and eternal implications. He satisfied the wrath of God. He takes away the guilt of man. He creates a kingdom into which everyone is welcomed through faith in him. But fundamentally, if we really want to boil this down, the message is a message of forgiveness. Look at verses 38 and 39. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and was laid with the fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. 
Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that this man, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This is a huge, huge testimony for us. The message is one of grace, not works. God forgives. God empowers. God enables. God changes What we do is we accept, we receive, we rest. We have a message. The church has a message. We have a strategy. We need a strategy because we have a message, and our message is one. We have one fundamental message. In fact, it's one message. It's called the word, singular, the word of the cross in 1 Corinthians 1.18. It's called the word of the cross because we have one message. It's, it's Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 2. Or listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The foolishness of God is seen in giving the church one singular message, and it is a message of sacrifice and death, which sounds utterly foolish to the world. How can a message of someone's murder, someone's execution, the death of the innocent, be the means by which there is victory? Well, that is the the, the complexity and the beauty of the gospel Christ's willing sacrifice ultimately destroyed the powers of death and hell. We have a message. Now, we have a lot to say about a lot of things, and that's good. We have confessions, and we have theology books, and there are issues that the Bible addresses that are social, moral, and political, and we have a lot to say, and that's fine. That's totally good and appropriate, but what are we known for? What is the message that we will get out? If we have five minutes on TV, what are we going to say? If we have someone's attention for any period of time, what's the most important thing that we want to communicate to them? What is our message? It ought to be Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. We say this because there is no other name under heaven by which anyone can be saved, so we preach Jesus before and above every other important message. Now, if we're going to extend this beautiful message of grace, if we're going to offer the invitation and let them know, hey, listen, there is redemption, there is forgiveness here, it must come with a warning. Look at verse 40. Paul's going on and on, like laying it all out. The gospel is here. The good news has arrived. The Messiah has come. Verse 40, beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. So he's warning them, I don't want you to experience this. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. The warning is now, listen, you've heard the good news. You've seen that God is gracious and kind and extends to you grace. 
that will redeem you, redeem your life, your soul, your mind. You will have a divine purpose. Like everything will ultimately in the end be restored and it's all by grace. And if you reject that, if you say, no, I don't want it, I don't believe it, I think it's all garbage or I think it's all unnecessary, then you will perish because you are ignoring the work that God is doing right before your eyes. The church has a strategy. Find the best ways to get the word out there. The church has a message. It is Christ crucified. And just to put a finer point on it again, the church has a book. And the reason this book is so important to us is because the scripture leads us to Jesus. And only the scripture leads us to Jesus. God has revealed himself. He has spoken in creation, right? Romans 1 tells us this. The Psalms tell us this. That God has made himself known in creation. No rational being can experience the created order and deny the existence of God. This is a prop, it's a properly basic belief. It's built into our very consciences. So it is there. And while God has revealed himself in creation, and while it is rejected by us, Christ is not revealed in creation. The gospel is not seen in creation. The gospel, the good news, the, the sacrifice of the Son of God for sinners, that is only communicated through Christ's incarnation, through his teaching, his preaching, and through the scripture that has been recorded. So only the scripture ultimately gives us Christ, and all of scripture gives us Christ. Whether that's through the promises of the one who would come to save us from our sins, or how the scripture oftentimes prepares us for further revelation about the Son of God, through the proclamation that is, is very explicit about who Jesus is, all of the scripture is pointing us to Jesus. And this is seen really well in Luke 24, uh, verse 27, when, when Jesus is walking with some disciples after his resurrection, and he begins to talk to them about all of the things that scripture says about him. But listen to how this is worded in Luke 24, 27. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The Bible is fundamentally about God's grace in God's son for us. It's fundamentally what it's about. And the church has a book, right? This is important because this book is the means by which God builds his church. It's his Holy Spirit that uses his word, right, that is proclaimed and heralded to grow the church. Like we said earlier, no one is converted. No one goes from spiritual death to spiritual life. No one is born again apart from the work and power of the Holy Spirit through the ministry of the word. For example, 1 Peter chapter 1 Listen to what Peter says in verse 23. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. How is anyone born again? I can remember hearing the gospel and wanting it to be true. Wasn't sure that it was true. Sounded good. Want, now like, I'd like it to be true. Too good to be true, but I like it. And wanting it and wanting to believe it, but it was just beyond me. I just couldn't really wrap my brain around it. There were things holding me back, and I just ultimately would say, no. What was my hope? What was going to cause me to be born again? Was I just going to get smarter real quick? Was the more persuasive person going to come along and somehow persuade me? 
Birth is not anything we have control over. We don't birth ourselves. We are born again by God's grace. It is his Holy Spirit that actually regenerates us, and he does this through the ministry of the word, through the preaching of the gospel. We want our church to be healthy and to grow, then yes, we are a people of the book. You know, Baptists used to be called, they're the people of the book. They know the book. And the truth is, 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 is for some time now, Baptists have been the ones that know all the stories in the Bible, but most of us don't know what they mean. It's like we've remembered the stories and we forgot the theology. So we got to get back to being a people of the book so that we can rightly preach the message and carry out a strategy to reach the world. And scripture doesn't just convert people, but it also sanctifies people. It changes people. Right? It's what God uses to grow us, to mature us into the people that we're supposed to be, to fulfill our callings. So look, when we say that Jesus builds his church, right, we mean that Jesus builds his church and his followers. He's the one that does it, and he does it through the ministry of the word. So I just want to say two things. I'm going to wrap it up with this. Two things that I want to say. One thing I want to say, or a few things I want to say to Christians here who are following Jesus, and something I want to say if you're not following Jesus. If you are a Christian... If you're a member of this church, you're not just a Christian, you're a Baptist Christian. So to my Baptist brothers and sisters and everyone else who is a follower, your hope, our hope is Jesus, right? Jesus is our hope. It's our confidence before, before, before God. Our only hope in life and in death is that we belong body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, right? And it's the word of God that guides us to Jesus, Jesus is our hope. It's the word of God that guides us to Jesus. So we're supposed to worship Jesus, not the Bible. Now, here's what's funny, funny to me. If we start saying, hey, everybody, don't worship the Bible, worship God, there are inevitably people that I'm friends with that will get all uptight about it. Like, what are you trying to say? That's exactly what I say. I'm not trying to say anything. I'm saying something. What I'm saying is you don't worship the book. You worship the one who wrote the book. That's the point. This shouldn't be complicated. But as soon as we begin to say, don't worship the book, like, or are you saying we shouldn't be studying the Bible? Are you saying we need to ease off our investment into the word? No, not at all. In fact, most of us need to intensify that investment. But the point is, is that we read the word to know the Lord, the author of the word, but we're way too easily satisfied with just knowing about the word. It's just too easy to feel good about studying and memorizing and getting things all together and getting the new Bible and getting the new highlighter. We get the ruler out. We like to underline. And all that's fine and good. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you are satisfied, if, that's, if that is the win, like, wow, I, I, I did it again. I did another day of reading my Bible. If that's all that it is, ultimately, you're worshiping the Bible. You are living for the Bible rather than living for God. And so I just want this to be really clear. Jesus wants to build you up in your faith. He wants to build the church. And the means by which he does this is the word. If you only go so far as to use the word as an end in itself, you're not going to grow. You've got to allow it to take you into communion with God, where you are resting upon his promises, seeking his face, praying with him, praying for, praying for your friends and, and seeking his help. And you know, if you, just to put a finer point on this, Jesus says the same thing, just way better than I can. In John 5, 39, Jesus says to some, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they who bear witness about me that you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. He's like, you're reading the Bible. You're all about that Bible. You're opening up the, the OT, looking for life, and you're not finding it. 
because I have the life. And the Old Testament, the Bible, is pointing to me. You can't stop short. You'll miss the grace altogether. So to the Christian, just utilize the word. Praise God for the word. To be a people of the book as a means for you to know and to worship the Lord. Secondly, to those who don't follow Jesus at this point, I just want to tell you, um, this thing that we're calling, calling gospel, it's an old word, it means good news, this, this idea that God loves sinners and he forgives sinners and he changes our lives, our, 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 our hearts, he changes our minds, he makes us into the people that he, he wants us to be and ultimately in the end, things are going to be made right. That good news is a message for you. Like, it's really easy for us to say, oh, it's a message for people that need it. It's a message for some people. I, I don't need it. Forgiveness of sins, that's not for me. Or maybe you think, I wish it was for me, but I've gone too far. The message of the church, the real message, the message Jesus gave us, that is a message for you. And I so want you to take it seriously. Now, I know you're tempted not to. Some of you are tempted not to because the church has let you down. But we have to be careful, though, because it's not just one church, right? The church let you down. A church has hurt a lot of people. Some, some churches have done wicked things. Some leaders, preachers, pastors have done horrible things. And I know many people who struggle with the message of Jesus because of the abuse that they've experienced or heard of or seen from churches. And as sincerely as, as I can say this, please consider that though... A church can fail you. Jesus never will. He will never fail you. I've been following Jesus since 1990. He's never failed me. He's always faithful and, and, and kind and, and, and generous. You talk to anybody who's been following Jesus for any time, whose lives are marked and marred with pain, suffering, and difficulty, they won't blame Jesus. They see what Jesus is doing and the difference they will point to his faithfulness. So I just want to encourage you, look to Christ, the one who endured shame, hostility, betrayal, and abuse more than any of us can imagine. And he endured all of that in order to give us the grace that we need to be redeemed. And I want you to know that this message is for you. I want you to believe this. I want you to know it because I want you to be in fellowship with us because our fellowship is with the Father. I, I want us to be one, but I also, I also want you to believe because I want you to share the message with us. I want you to be another person to tell other people about this grace that is available to all. To the worst of us, even me, if we're just willing to come to Christ humbly, confess our sins, and rest on his grace. Jesus builds his church, and he builds us up. He does it through this ministry of the word. So let's hold on to this as a means of holding on to Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for every, every good gift that you've given us in Jesus, these spiritual gifts that change and transform. But Lord, the biggest gift that you have given us is yourself. In Jesus, you have drawn near. In Christ, we are all one, and our union with him doesn't just give us the guarantee of, of heaven, Lord, but it, it gives us heaven now. We know you and you know us and we have peace with you. We thank you, Lord, for giving yourself to us that we might be yours and you would be ours. In Jesus' name, amen.